Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Aaron Bastani and tonight I'm joined by Maurice McLeod. Maurice, how are you? Hello, Aaron. You faring well? I'm not too bad at all. I'm, uh, I'm bearing up. Lots of news seems to be happening. Well, lots of news. That's what we're here for. Um, this evening we are discussing betrayal in the Labour Party, the rocketing price of food, a 500-year-old British icon apparently faces the wall, and is the media in this country racist? First story. It's official. Labour has banned Jeremy Corbyn from standing again as a candidate for the party. The decision was made by the party's National Executive Committee, who voted by 22 votes to 12 in favour of the motion put forward by Keir Starmer. Of course, these meetings happen in private, but Paul War briefed what was said inside. At Labour's NEC meeting, Shabana Mahmood just said, Jeremy Corbyn is a barrier to winning elections. His behaviour since resigning as leader in the aftermath of one of our worst ever election defeats is a threat to winning. She cited his stance on EHRC slash anti-Semitism. Paul War says in the following tweet, Shabana Mahmood said in past two years, Corbyn has, quote, failed to move one inch from the position that brought about his suspension. He failed to take advice offered to resolve the issue. He failed to do what the party had to do. Well, there we go. That's Shabana's error, not mine, people. To acknowledge the problem and change accordingly. Now, to some, it may seem odd that Mahmood mentioned the EHRC report there as the motion blocking Corbyn doesn't mention anti-Semitism once. Instead, it just cites Corbyn as a risk to winning elections. But that hasn't stopped Labour frontbenchers parroting the line that this is all due to the row about anti-Semitism. Here's Ed Miliband on Radio 4 this morning. On Jeremy Corbyn, is this move, this motion at the NEC today, is it about seeing off any chance of his local Labour Party choosing him as their candidate for the next election? Well, look, I think it's an important constitutional principle. I'm, I'm not a member of the National Executive Committee. It operates separately and, and that's right. Your that it leader does so is putting this motion the, to the NEC. From the, I'll come to your question. Mm. From, the shadow, from the shadow cabinet. So, so I'm not privy to exactly what goes on in the National Executive, but I don't think there's any mystery, Michelle, about the background to today's uh, discussion at the National Executive Committee. It's about one thing, which is about Jeremy Corbyn's a reaction to the EHRC report on anti-Semitism and his refusal to apologise uh, for that reaction. Th that is the background to this. I don't think there's any mystery about that. Keir Starmer said some weeks ago that he didn't believe Jeremy Corbyn should be a candidate at the uh, election, and that is obviously a decision the national executive will have to make today. Miliband got pushback for that intervention, as many felt it misinterpreted Keir Starmer's motion. And his response was subtly different when asked about the reasons for blocking Mr Corbyn when asked on ITV. Keir Starmer, when he became leader, said he was going to do everything he could to root out anti-Semitism. So we don't have at the next election what we had at the last, which is Labour and anti-Semitism being talked about in the same sentence. And it's really, really important that we show zero tolerance of anti-Semitism and that when allegations of anti-Semitism are made, they are taken with the utmost seriousness. That's what Keir Starmer's been doing. So did you catch that? The reason Corbyn can't stand as a Labour MP is because if he did, newspaper editors might put the words Labour and anti-Semitism in the same headlines. But I'm sure that won't happen anymore. In response, Jeremy Corbyn himself has since put out this statement in the last hour. 
The NEC's decision to block my candidacy for Islington North is a shameful attack on party democracy, party members, and natural justice. When I was leader of the Labour Party, I was determined to build a member-led movement that gave hope to a new generation. Today's disgraceful move shows contempt for the millions of people who voted for our party in 2017 and 2019 and will demotivate those who still believe in the importance of a transformative Labour government. Now, more than ever, we should be offering a bold alternative to the government's programme of poverty, division and repression. Keir Starmer has instead launched an assault on the rights of his own members, breaking his pledge to build a united and democratic party that advances social, economic and climate justice. I will not be intimidated into silence. I've spent my life fighting for a fairer society on behalf of the people of Islington North, and I have no intention of stopping now. The Times, prior to that statement, had this to say regarding how Starmer will respond. Starmer's team will relish the prospect of an election battle with Corbyn, but must now find a candidate to run against him in a constituency where he has a loyal following. Several Islington councillors whose wards are in Corbyn's constituency are understood to have rebuffed invitations to stand against him. He could win, a senior party source said. It depends on what his local party and councillors do. None of them will want to be the candidate. The article offers insights as to why anti-Semitism wasn't mentioned in Starmer's motion. Allies of Corbyn admit that the drafting of Starmer's proposal to ban his predecessor from standing drastically curtails the grounds for legal action against Labour and leaves him with little option but to retire or run against the party he led for nearly five years. In 2021, the High Court ruled that Labour could not be forced to run a candidate it did not judge to be in the best interests of the party. Anna Rothery, a left-wing Labour councillor in Liverpool, had unsuccessfully sued the party after her exclusion from the contest to become the Labour candidate for the mayoralty. Labour is understood to have modelled the wording of its motion to bar Corbyn on that ruling. Maurice, it's quite a turn-up for the books, isn't it? Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> lost a general election. In 2019, Labour got 32% of the votes. That means he can no longer be a member of parliament. It's such a, a bizarre um, uh, you know, ruling or even, even a bizarre motion to bring, isn't it? Because um, it's, the, it's this sort of weird political regicide as if, as if the Labour Party is, uh, is sort of some Viking tribe where you have to kill the king to, to be the king, um, you know. Uh, Neil Kinnock and Ed Miliband and and all the other Labour leaders who uh, Gordon Brown who who didn't win elections um, by by the by the wording of this weird weird motion would be would be sort of chucked on the scrap heap. But as you point out, and as everyone clearly knows, um, that's not what this is about. This is about signalling to the people that the leadership really want to signal to that. Hey, we're we're not that party anymore. This this man has this man and his followers and his ideas have no control over our party anymore. Look, we can not not only we, will we stop him from ever or anyone like him from ever being in control again. We can we can virtually throw him out of the party. Um, it's a it's a show of strength, and I'm sure there'll be uh, you know you I've seen it on Twitter. There'll be people within certain parts of the party who are enjoying how upset this makes uh, a lot of a lot of us on the left it's 
you know, that, that's what that's what's going on here. It's 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 clearly got nothing to do with, you know, the results of the last election. Do you, do you think there could be unintended consequences here, Maurice? Because in politics, it's all about the law of unintended consequences. Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have become Labour leader without the unintended consequences of Ed Miliband's own reforms, and ultimately. Jeremy Corbyn got 40% and 32%, much higher than Ed Miliband, Gordon Brown. We can go to former Tory leaders like William Hague, John Major. All those people remain in politics. So it's clearly quite unique what is happening to, to Jeremy Corbyn. But, but it does make you wonder. I mean, I, I can't see Keir Starmer getting below 32% in the next general election, but it's a pretty extraordinary precedent, isn't it? For a leader of a political party, that if you lose in a general election, you may well be disqualified from even standing again for parliament. I mean, and do you think they've thought through the implications of that on the Labour right? Or are they just so myopic and short-sighted that actually it doesn't really matter to them? I, I think you're being um, incredibly generous to to the, the sort of strategic thinking that's going on at the top of, of Labour at the moment, Aaron. I, I, I don't think that they're, they're thinking that through at all. I don't think they're worried about that. All that matters is what they can do now and how they can be seen now they you know i don't think they'd have any qualms about you turning and acting completely differently in the future if it suited them you know why would we why would we uh why would we think that they'd be consistent on that to be honest so um i i don't think that they're worried about the 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 implications the implications are though in terms of how the party is perceived in the public i think that there's i think if you're a member of the public watching this, whether you liked Jeremy Corbyn or not, you must be thinking, you must be bemused and thinking, what on earth is going on? How, you know, okay, so I didn't like his idea on that or we disagreed with him on that, but he's actually booted out of the party. It makes us look, and when I say us, I mean Labour. I'm a, you know, I'm a Labour, uh, I'm a Labour Party member and Labour councillor, but um, it makes us look petty and, and sort of weird and a bit bitter. So I think the the... And and for the sort of ten or thirteen million people who voted for those ideas, it, it it you know what what's it saying to them? So I don't think it will have any any sort of impact on uh, you know I, I don't I don't think that 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 the leadership will be particularly upset by anything that happens. But I think that that long term impact will be how we as a party are perceived. Um, and how we function, how, you know, if, if we have so little regard for our own democracy, how do we hope to engage members and engage activists when it comes to, you know, knocking on doors and being involved in the party? I, I, those sorts of implications, I don't think they've thought about. It's quickly. It's not often I ask three questions on the first story, or the first part of the first story. But you are a councillor, you're active in London. Important to say it's not North London, it's South London. But you're familiar with you know, bedrock Labour voters and an inner London constituency, you're familiar with what members say and think. That statement we just read from Jeremy Corbyn about how members, Labour voters, I'm thinking particularly in London here, will feel rejected, disenchanted because of this emotion which has been passed by Labour's NEC. Do you think there's a link to that? Because of course, you know, lots of the, the, the big house London mundits, as I like to call them, the people in TV studios, the opinion makers. And also it's important to say, I think people outside London don't realise and don't recognise how widely liked Jeremy Corbyn is as a constituency MP. And, and I think that's not lost on actually a lot of London MPs, 
mostly Labour, of course, but not all on the Labour left. But I think most of them agree with the principle that locals should determine their candidates. Do you think this could sort of stir something more widely in, in London Labour circles? Uh, it, it could do. I, th I feel like there's already quite a lot of um, nervousness, and I don't even just mean on the left, to be honest. Uh, you, you know, I feel like there's a, a, a real sense that control is completely happening from the centre and, you know, all ideas of, you know, local parties having a say in in, in who their candidates are or, or what their policies are or how they operate are, are, are being taken away. That's that's a problem. You know, the the whole, the, the idea that Corbyn is in, was incredibly unpopular, um, I don't know if that's true anywhere, but it's certainly not true in London when, when you know, uh, uh, Jeremy was not uh, a negative on the doorsteps when we were knocking on them. So this treatment of him won't win any favours any, anywhere, anywhere, you know, any, anywhere, anywhere sort of within inner London, I wouldn't have said. We have some more details of what happened in that NEC meeting. This is according to former Corbyn advisor Andrew Fisher on Twitter. I'm told Deputy Leader Angela Rayner absent for today's NEC vote. Her union and Jeremy's unison also abstained. Delegates from Unite CWU, that's the Postal Workers Union, and others, of course, FBU, ASLEF, TSSA, the last two are in regards to the transport industry, voted against. GMB, Usdor and the Musicians Union voted for Starmer's motion. Um, we also have a comment here from Islington North Labour Party. Local party members should select their candidates for every election, which, by the way, that's something Keir Starmer apparently agreed with three years ago. The, Office of Isling the officers of Islington North CLP strongly support this statement from Keir Starmer in February 2020. We believe in the democratic right of all constituency parties to choose their prospective parliamentary candidate. I mean, we really thought these days were over, didn't we, of parachuting in candidates. Therefore, we reject the NEC's undue interference in Islington North, which undermines our goal of defeating the Conservatives and working with our communities for social justice. Let's go back to Ed Miliband this morning as he defended the suspension of Corbyn, saying it was necessary to avoid bad headlines for Labour because it's very different to how Corbyn responded when Ed Miliband was himself being attacked by the press. Do you remember this smear on Ed from 2013 in the Daily Mail? The man who hated Britain read Ed's pledge to bring back socialism is a homage to his Marxist father. So what did Miliband Sr. really believe in? The answer should disturb everyone who loves this country. It was a grotesque story at the time, and this is how Jeremy Corbyn responded. Were you surprised by this Daily Mail article, and, and what do you make of the timing of it? Astonished. I mean, the idea that you could attack somebody because of their father's views, who is already dead, and then use such ludicrous language such as he hated Britain, was an enemy of Britain, and all this stuff. I mean, come on. Ralph Miliband was a refugee, came to Britain, made it his home, studied at Acton Technical College, went to university, and achieved an incredible academic career, and went in the Royal Navy, risked his life, survived happily, and... Um, 
then to be denounced in these lurid terms uh, is appalling. But also the timing is interesting, and I think it's backfired badly on the Daily Mail and the writer because uh, people will see through this very, very quickly for what it is, a cheap attack on somebody's father. And now I am a great admirer of Ralph Miliband, and I think his views were brilliant, and I think he's somebody that should be listened to very carefully. It's also important to say that if Corbyn has to step down as an MP after losing a general election, then why doesn't that apply to Miliband? As I've said already, he got a lower percentage than Corbyn after all. Maurice, we talked about this quickly um, a moment earlier, but I'm really interested in here about the idea of precedence because, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is not going to be the last politician whose career ends in failure. You know, there's that great quote, all political careers end in failure. Look at Margaret Thatcher, for instance, although she was booted out as well, uh, rather ignominiously. You think at the level of strategy that people like Keir Starmer, those around him, people like Ed Miliband aren't thinking that far into the future. But surely Ed Miliband has been around the block. He's a smart man. I don't think he's a particularly honourable man, given what he's done today. But I think he probably knows in his heart of hearts he's done wrong here. And, and politics does have a strange way of doing karma. And it could come back to haunt people like that, couldn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just too cynical, Aaron. I, I, I look at this and think it won't matter a jot if, in future, that you know, if Keir were to lose an election and they wanted him to stay, and the, you know, the whoever took over was still on his side, they'd just change the rules. That's you know, and and and. And we'd moan and go, oh, that's not fair. Look what you did to Jeremy. And they'd laugh and go, good. It's, I, I, I know that sounds really, um, you know, that's, that's a really low level way of looking at it. I just don't have any faith. You know, we're, we're playing by different rules. It's like, oh, but they've done this, so therefore you'll do that in future. They're just going, yeah, yeah, whatever. I just, I just don't believe it. Speaking of hypocrisy, let's just remind ourselves of Keir Starmer's own duplicity. This is a montage put together by a friend of the show, Saul Staniforth. I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn, who led our party through some really difficult times, who energised our movement. He's a colleague, he's a friend, and he's led us through some really difficult times in the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn made our party the party of anti-austerity, and he was right to do so. And who's a friend as well as a colleague. I respect him um, and thank him for what he's done. He made us the party that wanted to invest more heavily in our public services, and he was right to do so. And we must retain that. We build on that. We don't trash it as we go forward. The attacks on Jeremy Corbyn in that election we've just had were terrible. And they came back at us on the door. They vilified him and they knew what they were doing and they knew why they were doing it. Louise Elman says that he is a danger not just to the Labour Party but to the entire British Jewish community. I don't accept that. I don't accept that. And they do it to every Labour leader and they know why they're doing it. I do think he was vilified in the press. I think the whole of the party wants to be united. They want to come together. So we have to end factualism. We have to end factionism. I could not agree uh, more, just quickly, with regards to uh, Maurice's um, blackpilling, which I think many of us can share in these difficult times, not just in regards to the Labour Party. Hopefully the next time this happens, and there will be a Labour member, uh, a, le a Labour leader rather, 
who gets less than 32% of the vote. Navarra Media will be the mainstream media. Help us get there. And while I have your attention, uh, we here at Navarra Media get around seven, eight million views a month. About half of those don't come from people who subscribe to this channel. I say this every time I come on. I even tell Michael to do the same when he's hosting. Click that subscribe button. It only helps us grow, reach more people, get these stories to a broader audience. It doesn't cost you a thing. Next story. Everything is getting more expensive, and inflation for last month was a whopping 10.4%. But you probably have noticed price rises are particularly dramatic when it comes to food. And if you've suffered a mini anxiety attack when browsing supermarket aisles this month, well, the data backs you up. The Financial Times reports this. UK grocery prices rose at a record pace this month, adding £837, the average household's annual bill, as the cost of living crisis held its grip on shoppers, according to new sector data. Supermarket price increased at an annual rate of 17.5% in March. Market research group Kantar said on Tuesday, the highest reading since records began in 2008, with the cost of eggs, milk and cheese rising fastest. Hmm. Hardly inessential for most people. Unfortunately, it's more bad news for the British public, who are experiencing the ninth month of digital double-digit grocery price inflation, said Fraser McKivitt, head of retail and consumer insight at Cantar. Cantar said that food inflation in the last 12 months, as I've said, has added £837 to the average household's annual bill, that the cost of food and non-alcoholic beverages is rising at their fastest pace, in 45 years. It's worrying stuff, and I don't blame you if it comes as a shock, especially given that Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England's governor, keeps on assuring us that the headline rate of inflation will fall sharply this year, quote, starting probably in a couple of months or so from now. Well, Andrew, we're still waiting. Again, this is from the Financial Times, and it refers to the British Retail Consortium. That's another organization which measures inflation, including for food. The BRC data suggests that price growth of food and non-alcoholic beverages has continued to accelerate, as I've said, to a 45-year high. Their data is a bit closer, I think, to the National Office of National Statistics, which said 18.2% released last week. Susanna Streeter, and this is the killer, head of money and markets at Hargreaves Lansdowne, a financial services company. So the cost of living crisis was showing, quote, little sign of dying down. Maurice, price rises still haven't peaked. Are you surprised at these numbers, given the subject seems to have disappeared a little bit from the national debate. I remember in the winter, everybody was talking about the cost of living crisis. Not so much at the moment. It really has been pushed off of the uh, off of the off of the TVs, hasn't it? Off the news um, cycle. Um, we are, uh, but that's that's not an accident. You know, it's not an accident that that you know we're we're talking about small boats and we're talking about kids with you know nitrous oxide canisters in parks and and and, and you know nuisance beggars and all sorts of other things uh, are being drummed up uh, all, all the while people are really struggling uh, the the british dietary association said that 3 million people are either malnourished or at severe risk of malnutrition in britain right now that that 
should be the front, that should be the lead story on every news, you know, on every news channel ever. But it but it isn't because uh, we've done that and you know, winter's over, so it's not quite as cold as it was, and all that all this sort of thing. Um, but it's not going away. I mean, I know in Southwark there was a right to food demo, and I'm sure these are happening everywhere you know the the need is still there and 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 um there's only so long that we can sort of deflect the public's attention onto groups that you we might want to other or stories that might want to take our attention this is this is this is what's happening and we're you know the fight for proper wages for for workers is about this it's about making sure that that, that we can actually eat yeah, I think that's something to really uh, to think about. So we had, I think, three sets of data, which I sort of glanced over there very quickly. Um, one, like I say, from the Office of National Statistics, which was the highest. And then this data we've had from Cantor, which is 17.5%. Nobody out there, nobody who employs people is saying, I'm willing to give people uh, more than 17.5% uh, pay rise. And people that say, oh, well, you can just have a 2 or 3% pay rise, as is the norm across the public sector. Look at what's going on with food. Maurice, have you changed your shopping habits in the last uh, six to 12 months? I mean, that's something which is talked about quite a lot in this Kantar report. I think about 24, 25% of the public now shops at either Lidl or Aldi. You know, before 2008, those weren't players in the UK supermarket uh, scene. And now they've got about a quarter of overall market share. Speaking personally, do you, uh, do you, do you shop around more? Do you go where's best for bargains? What, what does Maurice McLeod's shopping look like? Uh, to be honest, I, I live off wine gums and and ginger nut biscuits, so I kind of buy those wherever wherever happens to be open at two o'clock in the morning. I have the worst diet ever, but uh, I, I I I have noticed even when I do buy proper food, you know, prices are, are crazy. I used to, used to think sort of eating at home would be the cheaper way of doing things, and and it just really isn't. So, um, you know, jokes aside, I know how people are are, are struggling, and it, it's not nice out there. I have to say the thing that really um, that really shook me, Maurice, I don't know about you, maybe you can tell me if there's been a moment or, or so on in the last six months, year. I was in Pratt the other day because I don't live in London. And so when I come into London, I go to Waterloo, I look at Pratt, it's a bit my treat, you know, I might get a cup of tea or something. Very rarely get a sandwich because I can't afford them, more on that in a moment. And I went to get, a, I think it was a cheese sandwich to eat in. And it was the best part of seven pounds, a cheese baguette. And I thought... Who's buying this? Who can afford this? This is absolutely extraordinary. Seven pounds for a cheese baguette. Are there any scare stories, Maurice? I know you said you only have a diet of uh, ginger nuts and wine gums. Is there anything you've seen recently and thought, wow, wee, that is, that is crazy. That is at least three pounds more expensive than it was just a couple of years ago. Now, to, to be honest, I, I, we're maybe in different uh, economic bands. I, I don't get to shop in, in, in Pret at all, Aaron. <laughs> Make my own sandwiches from 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 leftovers and stuff. I'm I'm a counsellor, so so now every, everything's shocking to me. Um, genuinely, the that people are surviving and bringing up families, um, you know, on the money they're on is is incredible to me. Yeah, very important to say. Look, and I have to say, look, I've slagged off uh, prep before, but it's too expensive for for me to have a cheese sandwich. Who's shopping there? This is a bigger question for the economy. We have Oliver Kant in the YouTube chat. Supermarket workers should strike too. Important to say, actually, the private sector right now with regards to pay increases is doing better than the public sector. 
So, uh, or something like Michael Walker, they didn't pronounce my T's better. Uh, supermarket works are actually doing reasonably well in terms of striking or potentially striking and getting higher wages. Similar with, you know, um, truck drivers, uh, people across supply chains with regards to food. I'm not saying they're getting a great deal, but the average uh, pay increase in the private sector is around 4 or 5%. In the public sector, it's around half that which is really, really scary. When you look at food inflation being what it is, clearly not acceptable. Next story. The Royal Mail is one of Britain's oldest organizations and it can trace its roots back to 1516. Its services have been available to the public since 1635. But now management say the company faces insolvency if workers don't accept a pay offer. 507 years of history could go just like that. And more importantly for workers, declaring the business insolvent and unable to pay its dues could mean job losses among the company's 140,000 employees. So how did a once great institution find itself in such a perilous situation? The Telegraph reports this. Bosses have previously claimed the business is losing £1 million a day with strikes so far by the Communication Workers Union, blamed for pushing it into a £295 million operating loss in the first nine months of this financial year. The threat to put the postal service into administration is understood to have come as the CWU is poised to announce further industrial action. So according to Royal Mail Management, it is strike action which is driving the company into the ground. And they say compromise with the unions is simply not an option. This again is from The Telegraph. Royal Mail bosses led by Chief Executive Simon Thompson say they cannot afford a bigger pay increase than what has been offered and that the business has no future without an overhaul focusing on the growing parcels market. Now, of course, the phrase pay increase here is an anachronism. Workers are simply trying to avoid a real terms pay cut. They're trying to not get poorer. And workers are understandably concerned that the focus on parcels could be code for making Royal Mail just another Amazon, only with an older logo. But are Royal Mail right? Do tough times and tough competition mean difficult decisions are inevitable? Well, if we go back to before this year, that's not what their accounts suggest. Indeed, in the three years before the strike wave, the Royal Mail recorded £1.7 billion in profits. In 2021, it saw £750 million of profit. In 2020, £700 million. And in 2021, the group even found £200 million to expand into Canada. And yet now the Royal Mail is insolvent. Ow! Maybe I need an MBA to be smart enough to understand something so complicated. Presumably, you do too. Don't get worried about it. You need to go to business school to really get such complexity. But it gets worse because besides company mismanagement potentially sinking a 500-year-old national icon, bosses have been feeding at the trough. Say hello to Rico Back. He was appointed CEO in 2018 before leaving two years later. On taking the role, Back was awarded a £5.8 million golden handshake before proceeding to work from his home overlooking Lake Geneva for the next two years. Back had replaced Moya Green, whose total compensation for 2012-2013 was £3.7 million and whose departing package was £2.6 million. And now Royal Mail has not one, but two CEOs. 
Simon Thompson, Group CEO, earned £753,000 last year, as well as £140,000 in bonuses, despite the company facing an investigation by Ofcom after failing to meet delivery targets. You failed an investigation? Here, have a bonus. Well done, you. And meanwhile, Martin Seidenberg, CEO of GLS, a subsidiary of the group, earned $1.6 million. And this is all while workers are expected to accept below inflation pay rises. And if they don't, well, the Royal Mail is toast. And in case you think CEO Simon Thompson is worth the cash, watch how he crumbled in a select committee just last month. Here he was being grilled by Labour's Darren Jones. There is clear evidence today, I think you've admitted it, that you've not been able to deliver the six days per week letter delivery obligation. You've blamed the industrial action for that, and previously you blamed, blamed the pandemic for it. Ofcom have said that if there's evidence of a systemic failure to seek to offer six days per week letter delivery service, that is a breach that requires investigation and potential enforcement. I'm putting it to you today, Mr. Thompson, that there is a systemic failure because you have verbal briefings going through your managers to your postal workers repeatedly over many, many months across the whole country that says, do not worry about delivering your letters for six days a week. Do you recognize that, yes or no? As I wrote in my letter, Chair, it was very, very clear as I wrote in my letter and I gave evidence, including, communication, including communications from myself, on March 2022, I wrote a column in the Courier magazine that was sent to every employee's home that made it very, Mr. very Thompson, clear. I'm not asking you about a column that you wrote in a magazine. I'm asking you whether you recognize that the fact that managers through your business are verbally cascading briefings to postal workers to not worry about letters being delivered every single day for six days of the week, that that by its very nature is a systemic failure because it is a system-wide failure. I'm asking you whether you agree with that, yes or no. We do everything that we can to do make Do you sure. agree with what I just said? Yes or no? Can I, just for clarity again, Chair, just so that I'm clear on the question so I can answer it clearly, please. Is there a systemic failure, a system-wide failure, at Royal Mail to deliver letters every day for six days each week because there are verbal briefings cascaded through the business that tell postal workers not to worry about delivering letters every day for six days a week. That is a system-wide failure. It is a systemic failure. It is therefore a breach of your universal service obligation. Do you recognize the system-wide failure that is currently taking place at Royal Mail? I totally understand based on the Not understand. US... Do you agree with me, yes or no? The, our USL performance has definitely not been good Do enough. Do you agree? You heard at the start of that clip Darren Jones say the Royal Mail boss had blamed the pandemic and then the strike for poor service. Elsewhere in the grilling, he made clear the full extent of finger-pointing by Royal Mail bosses. There's a theme to your answers today, gentlemen. There's a theme, which is we have rogue posters, we have rogue managers, we have isolated incidences, we've got a global pandemic, we've got industrial action. It's everyone else's fault. Everyone else's fault that there are all of these problems. Nothing to do with me, Gov. Nothing to do with me. Can you see, based on all of the information we've had, why it's difficult for me to agree with the way you're presenting your cases today? Blame everybody, except me. I'm only paid millions of pounds to make decisions after all. How could you blame me, poor little me? I'm only a multimillionaire. Maurice, insolvency would need approval from the government. Do you think they'll give it? 
Thank you for showing that clip and making me feel sorry for uh, for the head of the Royal Mail. I, ne- I never thought I'd feel sympathy for him. That was abysmal, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Now, in normal in a normal world, I'd, I'd say that the Conservatives would, would never allow the Royal Mail to go insolvent. It would be a real indictment on their on their policy of sort of privatizing, and you know that you know they 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 wouldn't do it. And, and plus, it's got the sort of history and. And, and, you know, links to the royal family, all that kind of thing. Um, with this lot, um, I'm, I'm not even sure. It, it, if, if, if they feel that, that doing this would be a way to get them closer to their dream of the Royal Mail being sort of a fancy Amazon, um, then maybe. And if they, if they cert- certainly if they feel that, that dangling or being able to dangle this threat is enough to sort of kowtow the unions and and get get workers to you know come back to work on on for a pay cut then uh, um then 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 again maybe you'd think it wouldn't make sense but i really don't know with with this current sort of breed of tory and what about labor i mean because this is an interesting one for me because i found the statistic navarra kindly published this on social media last year 63% of tory voters support public ownership of the 63% of Tory voters support public ownership of the Royal Mail. That's Tory voters. And yet there isn't a major mainstream party backing public ownership of the Royal Mail. 63% of Tory voters aren't represented by a single major party. Surely that's a massive space for somebody like Labour, isn't it? Because Starmer has been quite, let's put it kindly, flexible on public ownership. It still seems to hold for something like rail. They've been very, very keen to emphasize that, but it's been jettisoned for other things like energy and water too. I think water, potentially, they might, they might see the argument for public ownership. But on Royal Mail, this is just immensely popular, 500-year-old company. And like you said, it's got the, you know, the king's head on it, the queen's head on it. It's intimately associated with the monarchy. You know, you'd mm. think the most socially conservative institution in the country. This surely should be a home run in terms of arguing for public ownership. Why isn't Labour doing it? it? It is strange, isn't it? You you would think, for exactly the reasons you said, uh, of all the thing, of all of the 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 things that that we said we we nationalise or said we'd look about taking back into public ownership, that mail would be quite high up there for for all of those sort of get to stand by the flag and and all those sorts of reasons. Um, but. Um, it still seems like may, maybe it just feels too lefty a, a thing to be banging a drum about. Maybe it just feels like too left-wing a thing at the moment to be, it, it sounds too on the side of the workers or it sounds too, it sounds too, dare I say it, Corbynist to, 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 uh, for, for the current leadership to want to dive into it. I feel that it's one of those things that, that you know, uh, if they come to power or if they start to to be a little bit less panicked about everything does feel like a very obvious open goal you know that it's sitting right there people want it you'd look good it's failing anyway uh, you know it seems like an easy an easy win for labor next story the british media is structurally racist that's the message from a new report by the ethical journalism network the report is based on 27 in-depth interviews that took place black journalists and stakeholders who have worked or are currently working in the national mainstream media. These are just some of their conclusions. Racial stereotypes of black people are informing shared newsroom attitudes towards black journalists. 
Black journalists report feeling at best pigeonholed into covering certain topics solely on the basis of their visual identity. At worst, there is a shared experience of trauma associated with racist attitudes, which is perpetuating a culture of fear among black journalists. The report also found this. The sense that black journalists are interchangeable is pervasive. Racial microaggressions are commonplace and further entrenched feelings of trauma that many black journalists are facing. There is also an overwhelming agreement that bigotry is not taken seriously in the newsroom. The report concludes with this representation of minoritized communities is weak in the UK news media. When race or racism is covered in the UK media, there is limited nuance and minimal reference to the deeper issues of institutional racism or the development of solutions. Voices and work by black-led media organizations such as Galdem, The Voice and Black Ballad should be uplifted and sustained by the mainstream media. The roles of race and community affairs correspondents need to be made more prominent and sustained within their media organizations. Maurice, you've had a long career in the British media, including as political editor at The Voice. What do you make of this report? Uh, it's really, um, it's quite depressing. And the reason why depressing is that, that that could have been written at any point of my career. It, it feels like I've been having that uh, or similar conversations or reading similar reports uh, to that if for as long as I've been in journalism, I've been in journalism for nearly 30 years. Um, the, I, I kind of hoped um, that obviously I'm, I'm older now and I'm, I'm not sort of working in the same spheres. I'm not new in a newsroom and all that sort of thing. And I'd kind of hoped that, that things had moved on at least to the extent that, that, that that wouldn't hold true anymore. That feeling of, of either being um, completely, othered I mean completely othered the, the most othering I've ever felt is sort of walking into uh, uh you know a national newspaper newsroom where everyone's middle class everyone's white um everyone has different politics to me even um but not only that but being sort of you're either going to be the person that reports on race and you report on it in the way that your news editor wants you to or, or you really are just going to be there as a token, um, sort of to tick a, tick a box. That's how sort of how it's felt for a big chunks of my career. And so to read that report, it, it's quite depressing. It sort of makes you go, oh, God, I, I kind of hoped it was better for people coming up now. But it doesn't seem like it is. Yeah, let's just go through some of the, uh, the words I, I sort of went over there. I mean stereotypes, pigeonholed, interchangeable, lack of nuance, lack of deeper reference with regards to things like institutional racism. I mean, that's the full house, isn't it, in terms of the media failing uh, to address issues of race. On the, on the pigeonholed thing, I mean, I think of all of them, and none of it surprises me. I mean, I, it entirely tallies with what I've observed myself. And of course, I'm not a, a black person. I have friends and colleagues in the industry, and they, they say that as well. So none of it surprises me. But the, the pigeonholed thing of all of them feels like the sort of lowest hanging fruit, which is to say black journalists can have beats which aren't necessarily, you know, relating to race. Seems quite a simple thing. And you see it, for instance, sports journalism, right? I, th I think that's probably the one area of British public life where journalism is quite healthy when it comes to race. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, and that's partly because it's an outgrowth of the, of the professional football industry, 
which is you know, meritocratic. If you're not good at football, you won't be a professional footballer. Um, but nowhere else do I see that in the UK media media landscape. So you, you think that's fair that most young black British journalists coming into the industry are still pigeonholed in a way that you would have seen, say, 20, 30 years ago? Well, sadly, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not going to um, uh, disagree with their description of, of what they're experiencing. You know, I'm, I'm fortunately not in that space anymore. If that's what, if that's how they say it is, then, then, then of course I believe it's, uh, and it, it tallies exactly with my, with my experience. It, it, it really does. Um, you know, and as, as the world opens up and there are more avenues to get to, to do journalism, to create content and to be involved in things, uh, I hope that that, Either makes you know what I actually hope is that it makes mainstream media redundant, and 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 that that a new way of working and a new way of being open and, and being open to ideas has to happen. But uh, yeah, for the, the mainstream to to still be like that, um, I have no doubt that that's true, and I have no doubt that these young journalists are, are telling the truth about their experience. You said a moment ago that um, I think I don't want to get this wrong. You said that one of the most racist places you'd gone into, stepped into, was a was a was a newsroom. Was that right? Yeah, no. Well, one one of the most uh, other one, the most othering, othering. That I'd felt. So I think in in a lot of circumstances, you walk in and feel like, gosh, I really don't belong here. Uh, I've stupidly done a lot of careers that involve that politics <laughs> and journalism are places that where I've often been the only person who looks like me. But walking into a newsroom that, that I think is particularly uh, it's particularly like that, and it's very class-ridden. Everyone kind of, you know, obviously they know each other because they all work together, but they all come from the same backgrounds. They all have a, a very similar outlook, and you are definitely the outsider in that space. And if you're black and if you're working class or if you're a woman or if you're if you're if you're anything other than than that group, you, you know you feel an outsider. And then because of the nature of the work you're doing, you're doing work that's all about politics and talking about issues, and they all have one view and you ha all have another one. It's very, you know, th there's very few spaces I think in my life where I'll ever be such an outsider as 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 in an, as in a national paper, newspaper newsroom. And I don't know your your familiarity with the US. I mean, I have very limited familiarity with the US. But it, it does feel that on issues of, of race and current affairs, there is significant progress being made over there, which just isn't really visible here, which is to say on all the things that this report highlights, um, pigeonholing, stereotypes, lack of nuance, a lack of deeper in sort of investigation into things like institutional racism, clearly, it's far from perfect, but the, the, the mainstream conversation about all of those things in the US within, within legacy media not talking about Fox News, but I'm, th I'm talking about, you know, in the New York Times and the Washington Post or MSNBC, the big legacy outlets, it seems to have changed in recent years. Do you, do you think we're falling further behind progress in the US on, on this? Mm, the, the US is interesting, isn't it? Because it has worse problems, but the history is different. You, you know, the, the US is... His problems are all internal, not all. <laughs> a lot of the US's problems are internal, whereas um, because Britain exported its racism and colonialism for so long, we have a different different recent history and a different different demographic over here. So uh, as much as the problems are huge over there, there's also a bigger 
there's a bigger demographic, there's a bigger push, there's and there's been a bigger push for 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 more of those voices to to, to break through. It does feel like there's more of a vibrant media out there, but that's why people need to jump on and support Navara and platforms like that over here. That's very kind to say. I have one more question for you, uh, Maurice. What is structural racism and how should our audience understand it? Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, <laughs> no, not, not, not a, um, finishing on a simple one. So structural racism, a very, a very simple way of looking at it is that um, people understand uh, individual racism. You understand if you walk in somewhere and someone's nasty to you. If I, if I turn up at a newsroom and the news editor calls me a name or says, you black boy, go and sit over there. We don't, we don't like you. You know, you're not going to get much work. People can kind of understand what that is. That's personal racism. If the the nature is, oh yeah, we, you know, we're welcome to anyone, and I'm not racist, but but you know, we only uh, let people on the news desk who went to these schools or who are familiar with with this uh, um, landed gentry or speak these four languages because that's what's needed. That's what we've decided is needed on the news desk. It's nothing to do with race. Now, what that does is. Is, is means that people, you know, black people by default end up not being in those spaces. So nothing, nothing deliberate's happened or it doesn't seem as if anything deliberate's happened, but the structures of that organization exclude people of color. So you can, it's, it's the way of having racist institu- institutions without having any racists because everyone's nice and they don't, you know, no one meant it deliberately. That's a great explanation and a great place to finish on. Thanks, Maurice, for joining me tonight. I hope we cheered you up just a little bit, at least watching Darren Jones. Indeed, that that was fun. Thank you. Uh, And thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. I'm Aaron Bastani. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.